We've been about this work, diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, shared through the voices of a white woman and a black man. We bring lived experiences. We have pursued DNI progress for most of our professional lives. We use Crazy and the King to cover news, tips from colleagues, and host incredible guests. Listeners, count on Julie and I to transparently drive the conversation. We thank you for rocking with us. Check it. Check it. Julie, kick off the show. Welcome to Crazy and the King. My pod partner is back. Is back. Not that there was anything wrong with our guest. <laughs> the pod partner is back and we got a lot to talk about. Um, glad you made it all the way back. I know we recorded last week and you gave us kind of a play by play. Uh, how'd the vacation end? Outside um, of the flat tire. So, yes, there is a flat tire, um, but it did great. We got to spend the day out on the boat with my dad. Tristan got his first vaccination because Arizona is an open state. Um, came home on Saturday and my husband said, hey, I'm fully vaccinated now. We're going to Nashville to work for a couple of days. So I just got back from a, a couple of days in Nashville and I, I'm happy to be home, I guess, again. <laughs> I mean, I guess all of that shopping you did, he made sure you put it to use quickly. I mean, you yes. got to bring out some of those spring dresses. Beautiful. Oh. Yeah. Love that. Oh, Love yes. that. So let me tell you, um, New Zealand looks like they are trying to, to do a great job of taking care of women. And they actually uh, approved a paid leave after miscarriage policy, yep. which... According to the CNN article, it says it encourages the world to follow. Now, that's not a bad thing, right? Yeah, I mean, that's a yeah, good thing, I, right? I'm a pretty big fan of Jacinda, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so what I did was I continued to read a little bit, and there was a post on Instagram, mm -hmm. and it talked about New Zealand not being the first country to have a miscarriage policy. Really? And okay. It says that they received a disproportionate amount of attention uh, because they are perceived as a predominantly white uh, country by Western media. In fact, if you look at uh, some of the other places, India passed the Maternity Benefit Act back in 1961. Okay. Uh, Mauritius, I don't know where that is, uh, three no. weeks for miscarriage and 14 weeks for stillbirth both fully paid Philippines, 60 days of fully paid leave for miscarriages, Indonesia and Taiwan also have policies that are more aggressive, more of benefit to the okay. woman uh, than New Zealand's. And so the reason why we brought it up is because, well, number one, the U.S. needs to get on board. Hell yes. <laughs> Start there. And yeah, there. let's just start there. <laughs> <laughs> the U.S. needs to do a better job of taking care of women. And, you know, Julie, I often talk about, you know, when we were doing our presentations last year, um, I think I I think I titled I can't remember. I think it was titled COVID-19 present and unequal. And, and in that presentation, I would I would share with with listeners that that we needed to do a better job of creating policies for women. We need to customize policies in our workplaces for women and situations like this. And let me just say this to you, full transparency. 
even in saying that, miscarriage wasn't a consideration for me. Yeah. Um, one thing that I think is is interesting because the way I read this, um, and even before you sent the CNN, CNN article, it says specifically employees in the country. So it was my assumption that it's also fathers whose partners um, have right. experienced right. miscarriage. Is that correct? Okay. That's correct. Yeah. That's correct. Okay. Yeah. I mean, they're absolutely right to call it out as like not the first. Um, and I think that that assessment by, was it La Fayette? La something? La Fayette? Yeah. Um, I think that they're right. I think they're French, which is an interesting perspective for them to bring since they are also mostly white. Um, but I, I think that's a good point. But I think the progress is also the point. We can't just keep praising white company con countries. Um, and I will say even of that list you put out, most of those are strong or semi-strong democracies. So that Western advancement is happening is wonderful. But yes, she's definitely not the first and New Zealand is not the first, although I am a huge fan of hers. Absolutely. Uh, while you were gallivanting up and down the West Coast... Um, well, I don't know if Jeepin is really Galavan. Probably best to say. Is that Galavan? <laughs> okay. Galavan. Why, 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 <laughs> while you were Galavan up, up the, uh, the West Coast, the Suez Canal was blocked. Uh, did yeah. you get a chance to the, see that? Was it the Ever Given or the Evergreen? That, yeah, that was a mess. Ever, ever Given. Yes. It ever was Given. Ever, ever Given. Yes. And let me tell you, amazing how uh how that that accident i'll call it that i don't know what else to call it how much it could have and is impacting economies across the entire globe but i brought the story up because now that the ever given has been unlodged and in, everything is moving again there uh was a commander uh of the uh ship her name is mara elza 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 Elzadar? I think it's Elzadar. I think that's and, close, yeah. Yeah, pretty close. And according to the BBC, she is being blamed for the blockage. So okay. uh, it's a doctored image that's going around of her. Um, it's an image that shows her as being the person who uh, steered the ship into the canal or whatever the case may be. And she says it's not the first time that she's faced challenges in that industry, historically uh, represented and dominated by men. Uh, and at present, only 2% of the world's seafarers, according to the International Maritime Organization, are women, just 2%. Wow. And she's young. I think she's like 30 years old. Really? Oh my God. Commandeering this ship. So the amazing thing for me is number one, why'd you pick her to pick on? Like of all of the people on the ship, you had to pick her. But but the more serious question for me is I wonder what um aggression, bias, and harassment numbers look like in the maritime space. Yeah. I don't even know, I didn't, think about I, that. I, and, yeah, and I didn't have time to, you know, to do the research like, you know, Maybe next year in year number four, we'll have a full staff, you know, people that can help Ooh. us do research, 
Um, they can find guests for us. Oh. They can put articles on our computers, like in our shared oh, folder. That sounds magical. I, I, four we years need a sponsor in, like, for that. Yeah. I mean, maybe we can get a sponsor <laughs> to help us build out like a little research team and a prep team and all of that. So I didn't have time. So full disclosure, audience, I, I didn't have an opportunity to go out and look at the numbers, but I'd love to see what does bias, harassment, aggression, what do those numbers look like? In that space, we talked about Me Too and Time's Up in entertainment. We talk about it often in technology. We've talked about it in a number of other corporate quarters and industries. One that I didn't and we've never heard is shipping. We've I, talked about Me Too in the military. Yeah. Yeah. Talked a about a more in the military. Traditional yeah. male, you know, dominated place. And honestly, Nothing I ever even thought of before, right? So kind of two stories of things that you and I collectively have not thought about in terms of where women are and what women need. Um, and just to clarify for our listeners, so uh, Marwa was not the captain of the ship. Is that a correct statement? Correct statement. So it's total BS. The the doctored photo, her, some some other guy drove the ship into the canal. Yeah. Now she's okay. part of like leadership, but she's not the person that absolutely had control over, you know, the, the course the and the, yeah, the ship itself. No, not gotcha. Indeed. Yeah. That, the way the BBC presented the article, I was a little confused. Um, so thank you for clarifying that she didn't do it. She doesn't deserve the blame for it. And she's being targeted. Um, as are a lot of successful women in groundbreaking spaces for them. Um, I, I love this other little story you popped in for us to talk about because it just hits so closely on something I wanted to talk about, too. Yeah, absolutely. So we found something over on political, the State Department. Um, they have a diversity problem. I mean, I wish you guys could see us right now, but like I just did the little side eye. Uh, so the State Department's official historians say that the minority staff and I despise when people categorize using the word minority. That is so much of a challenge for me. Anyway, the historian says that the minority staff made up 12.5% of the employees at the end of the 1980s. Okay. And according to figures from the GAO, from 2020, the ratio of African-American employees has fallen since 2002. Um, I think it's gone from like, it's down to like 13%. So it's, it's, um, it's actually regressing, going backwards. Okay. Now, you got to ask yourself why, when people always talk about good government jobs, You've heard that phrase before, right? Good oh, yeah. government job. Uh, people will say that the post office has always been a place for the middle class, yep. hence black uh, and brown individuals to to secure employment. But they look at the State Department almost like a country club. Oh. It's not really considered to be accessible to black and brown people other underrepresented, overlooked audiences, which probably speaks to why the numbers are going 
backwards in terms of representation. Yeah. I mean, it would be interesting to see if the administration, if there were accelerations based on administration. So what, 2002 was Bush two, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. then Obama and Trump. So it would be interesting to see sort of that up and down. We've also had so much of our State Department roles gutted in the last four years. Um, I know the number of employees have come down because Trump chose not to fill diplomatic core roles. Um, And I wonder how black employees were impacted there, but also there has to be some sort of cultural conversation that needs to be happening. So it could be just sort of this trifecta of things happening at the state department. You're absolutely right on the elitism. Um, Applying for a job there is, is like getting into Harvard. So, and you know, which is for the most part where they've been recorded, not recording, recruiting, you know, they've focused heavily on people's academic pedigree. Yeah. Yeah, and it's the Ivies, the connection, the languages. You're absolutely right. And funny enough, this morning I was watching MSNBC. So, you know, I always watch Morning Joe. Um, mm-hmm. Big fan of that network and the diversity that they are bringing to the table. Um, and so this morning they were talking about a similar report that came out about local, county, and state government jobs and how especially women of color are completely underrepresented in those jobs. And there's demonstrative evidence of them not being chosen, right? Not being chosen to be hired. And um, Minda Hartz was a guest, you know, we're both big fans of Minda talking about the memo and how to be more impactful for women of color within those roles. Um, but across the country, they found that these state, local, and federal or national state, local jobs were not going to people of color, but especially not going to women of color. So it's not a state department only problem. It's a, it's an across the board problem, I think, within government that we could see um, with these much deeper dives like Politico and uh, MSNBC have done. Yeah, we got to do a better job. I mean, you know, again, yep. inside of the article, they talk about people, you know, facing brick walls as it relates to, um, you know, performance evaluations and being able to be promoted, uh, understanding exactly what it requires to to take advantage of promotion. And, you know, the bottom line is the State Department, as I understand it, Jay, is they are our voice around the entire globe. Like they are our ambassadors. They are you know, our marketing pieces, they are our conciliatories, they are they are so much of who we are as a country. And if we're going to create relationships all around the globe, relationships with allies, relationships with countries that feel like we have wronged them in the past, if we're trying to mend, repair relationship, if we're trying to strike up new relationships, show that we are being fair, I mean, who better to do that than a diverse uh, chorus of voices? And so I just don't understand why they would see that as being anything less than important, all things considered. 
Yeah. And I mean, the political appointments are so, well, they're just political, right? They are the sort of elite elite of of the um, U.S. government. But bureaucratic staff, I think we need to, you know, differentiate what's really we're looking at and and run from there. I could talk about this all day because I my favorite saying is uh, great employees go to the government to die. Um great careers die in, in government employment. Um, and so obviously we're losing a lot of talent there. It could be for a variety of reasons. Absolutely. So this week, if there is not a level playing field for advancement, you're going to invest hundreds of thousands of dollars in personnel and find it lost to retention issues. Let's get into this week's show. All right. So thanks again to Jobvite for sponsoring this week's show. Um, I have an interesting conversation I want to have, and I'm not sure what your reaction is going to be, Tor. Um, two big stories in the last couple weeks um, from a civil rights and, and democratic rights regarding underrepresented, um, sometimes really heavily focused on um, populations at the state and local level have been kind of driving my thought process and a lot of news this week. So the first one, I, I actually, I think it happened right after we, we recorded yesterday or yesterday, last week, um, Georgia legislature passed into law some perceived um, pretty aggressive voter suppression um, laws, including the inability to um, be provided water or food when you stand in line to vote, um, not having access to mail-in balloting, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Kind of the things that we're seeing 300 plus bills across the country right now. And after a lot of finagling the big companies like Delta and Coke um, came out and gave okay statements, not good enough. Um, but MLB said, hey, we're out. We're moving the all-star game out of Atlanta. We're going to go to Colorado and all vote by mail state because Georgia has to be held accountable for that. Yeah. Yeah. And, let me jump in real quick. Yeah. You know, uh, first and foremost, uh, I don't know if you've followed it long enough, but at, uh, of course, the former president has weighed in and a number of our current legislators have weighed in to the to the effect, to the tune that Colorado is just as bad as Georgia. Have you heard that? So I, I have heard that, um, but Colorado is actually one of the they're not perfect. No state is perfect because every state has restrictions to voter access. But Colorado is probably one of the model states at this point because everyone gets to vote by mail and they get to vote over an extended period of time. Now, what they do in terms of how you have to identify yourself um, causes some suppression, but they are leagues passed in uh, Georgia and they're uh, leagues passed Indiana. So not perfect. Yeah, but, but nothing like you, this. Yeah, but let me tell you, and and yes, they do have voter ID laws. Mm -hmm. uh, so, for example, in Colorado, you can provide a copy of uh, of a current utility bill, bank statement, government check, paycheck, government document that shows the name and address of the elector. 
and so many other. I believe that they have something like 60 different forms of identification that they are willing to accept. So sure, they want you to prove who you are or be able to validate who you are when you register, but they have so many more to choose from. So I think it's disingenuous and we're accustomed to it, Julie. You know, we know that these folks, they like to stand up and pontificate and they only want to, um, they want to vocalize the part that makes them feel good, look good, if you will. Mm-hmm. But in all honesty, you know, like he, they even went down to the fact of they they showed that Colorado has um, what do you call it when you can drive up and drop your ballot in the box? What yep. what's that called? The drop in what, drop ballot by. box, ballot, ballot box. box or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. They have like one box for every nine thousand people. Georgia, on the other hand, is moving it down to one box for every one hundred thousand people. Yeah. And you can mail it back in Colorado. That's right. All day long. And so now I can mail it and or drive up to a box that's pretty much so accessible. And I don't have to stand in line for four, five, six, seven hours versus what they were experiencing in Georgia. And so, you know, again, for me, it. I, I, I always try my best. And some people may say, well, Torn, you know, you're you're straddling the fence when you say this. I don't I try not to get caught up in Republican and Democratic argument because I know that there are flaws, period, in the system. Mm-hmm. But some things to me are just like so common sense. Why would I why would I want to pass legislation? around water and food and all the other stuff, but also around, no, let's not put more boxes out. Let's take them away. Why yep. would I do that? To make the lines longer, to make okay, you not be it. able to vote, right? Got that it. The whole point is what can we do to discourage you? So you got to stand in line. And if someone gives you a bottle of water, they're going to be arrested. I guarantee you my ass, if this stands, we'll be down there handing out bottles of water and some Domino's pizza or something, right? Like I think Chef Andre says he will cater voting voting places, um, and it's all designed just like voter ID laws are to suppress underrepresented communities who don't have access to identification, who work during the day or work during hours when they're not available to get those IDs. They don't have money to pay for those IDs. They don't have utilities in their name. They are people with disabilities, right? It's all designed to get rid of us. But I think that you're hitting my point before I'm even even getting there is what is the role of a corporation when our civil and democratic rights are in potential jeopardy, right? So in 2000, what, 10 um, Citizens United determined under the law that Corporations are people and they have the same rights as voters, donors, voices, as anyone else like you and me. What is their obligation to use the mass amount of power that they have to ensure that we have equal access to the ballot box and equal access to civil rights 
like what we're seeing now with more than, I think it's more than 40, I'm sorry, 95 transgender bills across the country that are currently focusing on transgender youth, their access to sports, their access to healthcare and gender affirming treatment, even just a basic referral to a doctor who could treat and support a transgender youth in their transition to their gender identity is now illegal under Arkansas law. Children in Mississippi, females, transgender females in Mississippi cannot compete in competitive sports. We're not hearing, right? Everybody got up in arms over Georgia. And as we, in my opinion, as we should be, I haven't heard from one Arkansas company that I can find, one Mississippi company that I can find outside of like the Chamber of Commerce to say that they're going to use their voices to protect transgender youth in their in their states that they're working on. And that's, I think, where I'm trying to figure out, one, what is the role? And two, what does it take to, it, what's it going to take to get your damn attention, right? If we have to have a full, complete breakdown of democracy and access to voting like what they're pushing for in Georgia, that is something that will get your attention. If we're setting up lack of health care, psychological damage and and likely death at their own hands or the hands of someone else of transgender youth. But that's not enough to get anyone's attention. And that's not enough to bring the corporations like, oh, we're doing all we can for LGBTQ people. No, you're not. No, you're not. Every medical association, every company in in Alabama and or Arkansas and Mississippi, I feel like should be talking about these things. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, when just remember, think back to the Edelman Trust barometer that we've talked about uh, almost every year here on the pod. And the Edelman Trust barometer talks about that that barometer number is dropping as it relates to leadership and their uh, employee force trusting the leader, trusting that CEO to do what is right, right beyond just chasing profits. And I actually just pulled it up real quick and the number is 86%. 86% of people polled in the Edelman Trust barometer for 2021 expect CEOs to lead on societal issues. 86%. Keep in mind, this is not a number that only polls those in the US. The Edelman Trust barometer polls people across the globe. Small countries, large countries, advanced countries, emerging countries, they poll everyone. And they've been doing this now for close to 100 years, 50 for sure. But I think it's something like 100 years, between 50 and 100. And so this is really the first time. Actually, Julie, if I'm honest, this is the second year in a row where I've seen the number for societal issues being one of grave importance for people. So when you ask that very important poignant question about what's the, the, the corporation's role in issues like voting, transgender uh, legislation, you know, children at the border, which we didn't bring up in health care, which we talked about a little bit and could talk about more. Uh, I think we'll talk about it more. Next. Um, I think we will. But 
I think when you when you see all of the various things that are happening around us, it's the reason why Dick Parsons and so many uh, organizations say, wait a minute. This is going too far like you are. You are absolutely doing something that is detrimental to our democracy and we're going to speak up. Unlike people like Mitch McConnell and Tim Scott and other Republicans who are saying that uh, corporations uh, speaking up and you know, making choices to to move the Major League Baseball all-star game from one state to another. Mitch McConnell said that these companies are exercising economic blackmail. Well, did you think it was economic blackmail when the pillow guy was out talking all that shit during the uh, election? <laughs> yep. you, you understand what I'm saying? So yep. it wasn't economic blackmail when that corporate uh, representative had so much to say about our election. Yep. Uh, it's not economic blackmail when you want these corporations to donate to your campaign. It's free speech then. It. So it's crazy how a person like Mitch McConnell, he wants to be bought by the corporations, mm-hmm. but he wants to own them. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So Hobby Lobby is another really good example yeah. of stripping Bobby, access. That's right. That's it. Yeah. Buy me. You know, give me all the money in the world. Just yep. buy me. Buy me. But I want to own you. I want to tell you what to do. Yes. Yes. Ludicrous. And, and then be quiet when we want to own and control women's bodies and own and control access to free and fair elections. Say nothing. Anyway, Say nothing. I could go on to this all day, but I'm very interested in what you've brought to the table this week too. Well, we'll only get to it after we do a job bite uh, commercial. And just in case some of you like to hit fast forward, I'm going to say it. Make sure you listen to the commercial. The link for the commercial is jobbite.com forward slash C-A-T-K. But I mean, Julie and I, we did record something. Have a listen. Really quick before Torin and I hop back into the episode, have you heard about the new job bite? The social recruiting innovator is now the end-to-end TA suite leader, helping TA teams attract, engage, hire, onboard, and promote the talent they need to succeed. But built specifically for talent acquisition professionals, the Jobbyte Talent Acquisition Suite delivers an unmatched depth of capabilities from AI to DNI, recruitment marketing to applicant management, new hire onboarding, employee referrals, internal mobility, all with next-gen analytics to help you prove the value you deliver to your organization. Whatever your recruiting challenge, Jobvite has a solution. Visit jobvite.com slash C-A-T-K today. Again, jobvite.com forward slash C-A-T-K. Now let's get back into the show. Awesome. So um, I mentioned the healthcare system uh, in the, uh, the last segment, if you will. And I found a story. It's a bit dated. So for those of you who are, uh, you know, staying on top of diversity and inclusion related, you know, programming, you may have caught this story last month. It actually happened in early March. And, you know, as I was pondering this, I said to myself, how do we miss this story? Um, But the JAMA podcast, JAMA, J-A-M-A, which stands for Journal of American Medical Journal of American Medical Association, their podcast, uh, whose host is a white editor and physician, 
question whether racism even exists in medicine. That podcast that they recorded late February, um, it surfaced a number of complaints across Twitter and other social media platforms. So this story has a good ending. Uh, the host, uh, it, uh, he resigns and the editor of the Journal of American Medical Association issues an apology, but we're not going to start there. We're going to start with uh, this young uh, person, this person on Twitter. Uh, she goes by the handle of Shirley World Maryland. I'm sorry, MD. Shirley World MD, and she had plenty to say. Now, I put the link in, Jay, for you to kind of follow along. I'm just going to summarize it. But she she uh, she starts by saying Jama dropped the 16 minute podcast on structural racism that is insensitive at worst. Um, I'm sorry, insensitive at worst, violent at best. They'll almost certainly delete it and release some pithy statement. She took a listen and took notes because it's 4 a.m. My call room cot is hard. Plus, I got time today. Now, Jay, let me tell you something. When a woman, particularly a black woman, says, I got time today, you might want to not be on the uh, offending end of that wrath. If anyone tells you, I got time today. That means they're going to get you at. They're going to serve your ass a little bit of that business. And she went to work on Twitter. Did you see that? Did you click the link? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm reading it now. She, yeah, absolutely. So so she says um, the guest on the podcast provided examples of how his father didn't give his full last name when making restaurant reservations for fear of being denied because he was Jewish. He seems, and so uh, Shirley World MD says, he seems unfamiliar with the literature showing that black and ethnic names still face that scrutiny in job applications. So what this person is doing, this guest on the podcast, provided a number of examples of why racism is not systemic. It reminds me of an exchange I had with this cat on Twitter a couple of uh, weeks back, Conceptual James. Conceptual James is a person who who doesn't believe in critical race theory. I'll talk about his weak mm-hmm. ass in a little bit. Oh, please. Uh, yeah. So so the guest uh, then says uh, in summarizing the thread, she talks about the guest sharing a cute colorblind story about a doctor from Canada. He talks about the laws of yesteryear. He talks about BIPOC employment, another phrase that rubs me the wrong way. Do you use that phrase, BIPOC? You know what? We were talking about that the other day, and I tend not to use it, but just because I would rather differentiate between. And I asked a friend what her opinion was, and she was like, I'm fine with it. So it's one of those, I just try not to. Yeah. Yeah. And I try not to as well. Um, But- the person that was a guest on the, the JAMA podcast talked about BIPOC employment and that the term racism is problematic. And so that's what every racist she, says. 
Uh, of course, of course. <laughs> so, so here's where Shirley World MD tightens them up real quick. She says, um, in my first tweet, I called this podcast Violet. Why? Because it validates the anger, incredulity, incredulity, incredulity with which many white people approach anti-racist work. It demands that white discomfort be prioritized over black and brown death. Yep. It says we would care if you were nicer to us. And I had to stop and just sit with that for a moment. Because let me tell you, Julie, you know, I'm not a person who's got a good clap back. You know, I'm not that that person on Twitter. I'm not even that person really in real life. Like, I don't really go with a whole bunch of back and forth. I don't do a whole lot of arguing with people. Never been a person that do a whole lot of arguing. Never been a person that does a whole lot of back and forth. So I'm not witty with with it. You know, I'm going to say what I'm going to say, and that's what it's going to be. And I'm not going to do a whole bunch of talking. Um, but when I hear these young people, when I hear other people talk about how often white people need to be centered in these discussions. And I mentioned conceptual James and critical race theory. And I've told you on this pod, and I continue to say it, it's not something that I really subscribe to. I'm not trying to, to force critical race theory in front of people, making them have to apologize and all these. Uh, that's, not, that's not my style. But when I hear people talk about it, whether it be that, whether it be anti-racist work like she mentioned, whether it be reading like White Fragility from Robin mm -hmm. D'Angelo, so often in these discussions, people that are white in the room need to be centered. They need to be coddled. Yes. They need for it to not be uncomfortable. What can yes. you do to make me feel better about what it is that I'm hearing? I want to help. I want to be available to the progress, but I don't need you to make me feel bad in the pro. Can you soften it for me? Do you see that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the best things that I learned from one of our interviews, um, oh my God, the white guy, the doctor. Uh, it, oh, yeah, from Texas. Yes, I know. Favorite, I know. One of my favorite podcasts. I know. I know. Was Robert Jensen, Doctor Jensen. Yes, Jensen? Doctor Jensen, Doctor. Yes, the heart of whiteness, and yes. that's that. The best lesson I've learned on this podcast is to shut the fuck up. And I'm still not perfect at it, but I am much more. I'm much better at it, and I'm much more recognized when I do it. And that's. Like, you're absolutely right. Absolutely right. And I hear it all the time and I see it all the time and I still need to work on it because here I am talking about me right fucking now. <laughs> right? You did. I did. I understand. I got Damn you. And I understand. So the other piece that made the story amazing for me was um, another person on Twitter that was upset about the podcast and about some other things that are happening in the medical space was a Dr. Brittany J. Uh, and she also went to work on Twitter 
And so she recounts a um, a meeting that she and a number of other black doctors uh, had with the president and senior leadership of the American Medical Association. And just real quick, Julie, she talks about um, from the moment they walked in. Uh, she said, it's not acceptable for you all as an organization, as a governing body, the American Medical Association. It's not acceptable for you to distance yourself from what happened over at JAMA, because apparently they were trying to say, wait a minute, we didn't have anything to do with that. But in fact, you do. She reminded them um, that the American Associate Medical Association has a legacy of brutal racism. Reminded them that they have a legacy of brutal racism. And when we talk about legacy, um, I'm holding this up so you can see it. The 1619 Project uh, on page number 57. The author of this piece, it's myths about physical racial differences were used to justify slavery and are still believed by doctors today. It was written by Linda Villaroso. And one quick passage from this, Julie, on page 57, a 2016 survey of 222 white medical students and residents published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences showed that half of them endorsed at least one myth about physiological differences between black people and white people, including that black people's nerve endings are less sensitive than white people's. Holy shit. 222 students in 2016, five years ago, when she wrote this, the 1619 Project, two years ago. Our nerve endings are less sensitive than white people's nerve endings, which would contribute to why we are misdiagnosed often. We are undersupported prescribed medicines. We are not listened to for black women when they are in childbirth. And I can go on and on and on. And so, this meeting was a very important meeting, you know? Yeah. I mean, that that tweet right there, we reminded them that AMA has a legacy of brutal racism. And I think we couldn't have a more poignant example than the one you just gave. Yeah. They ended the meeting with a call to action. Uh, what they did was they asked the AMA to fight for the healthcare concerns and equity of black, brown, trans, people with disabilities, most vulnerable populations among us. They want the AMA to fight to make a difference, fight to show that you care, that these audiences, these overlooked groups of people are important. They ask that they stop being misogynistic and that they uphold their oath to do no harm. And podcast that, has been removed. Uh, that podcast that I mentioned over at JAMA, I'm sorry to cut you off, Jay. No, go ahead. That podcast um, from JAMA has been removed, and there's an apology. So if you guys you know, want to get out online, 
You can find the apology by the editor in chief of JAMA. His name is Dr. Howard Boschner. Uh, again, Dr. Howard Boschner, B as in boy, A-U-C-H-N-E-R. He's the editor uh, in chief over at JAMA, Journal of American Medical Association. He did remove the podcast. You, It's going to be hard for you to find it. I couldn't find it because I wanted to hear the entire episode, but he did put up a 54 second apology that you can find. Uh, and we included a couple of links to the stories. Yeah. And so that brings me to our name drops this week and one I could not be more proud of and one who would most certainly agree with everything that you've had to say today, Mrs. Mrs. Melissa Hickson, uh, wife of Michael Hickson, who we talked about um, mid last year is out there doing her first education and advocacy event for um, intersections and disability high uh, disability bias and discrimination in healthcare at the University of Illinois Chicago next week on April fourteenth. Um, she continues to blow me away every single time I speak to her. She's going in, she's doing the work, and she's going to make sure that people know Michael's name for years to come. And so I'm going to post this on our Facebook page. I'm going to post it on our Twitter. Um, if you can join me and us listening to Melissa next week and cheering her on, that would be awesome. Congrats, Melissa. Yeah, I see that. Actually, um, I'm on it now. There's actually a place for me to uh, download the calendar invite. So I'm going to I'm going to at least put it on my calendar and hopefully I'll be able to uh, attend. I can't remember what I'm doing right now on the 14th. Um, yeah. OK, cool. My uh, name drop this week is uh, Attorney General Letitia James. So uh, apparently Wayne LaPierre put the NRA into bankruptcy to avoid facing financial investigation uh, by New York's Attorney General Letitia James. Uh, and so what Letitia James is doing is she's asking the federal bankruptcy judge to either appoint a trustee to run the NRA instead of LaPierre or throw out its bankruptcy case. Can't have it both ways. Can't so let's put ways. somebody in place so we can. That's right. So we can overlook this thing and make sure they are adhering to the regulations, stipulations of the bankruptcy yep. or throw out the bankruptcy so we can get in and take a look at their finances. Uh, but the bottom line is, if, in fact, uh, she's able to do that, it'll make it easier for her to seize the group's assets. And the reason why it. it listen, I'm not against uh, gun ownership. Not at all. I know. What I want to see is the NRA stand up when black and brown men are being shot in the street. Yes. See, they don't like a Mitch McConnell. They don't say anything when unarmed black and brown people are being shot in the street. They never say anything ever. So if you're not going to support a well-rounded gun ownership or responsible gun ownership or whatever else they call it. If you're not going to be well-rounded and balanced, then I don't care about you. And so I want to see AG Letitia James get on that ass. Um, and so we'll see what happens. So that is, or she is my name drop for this week. Yeah. And so, well-deserved. Absolutely. I close reminded each and every one of you, to share the pod with your digital tribe. 
like let people know, Julie and I, we are really like we are crying so we can get a research team. We want some more sponsors. We we want all of that because we want to give you good quality listening. We want to grow the pod. We want to give you, you know, our take on stories. We want to be in a position where we can prepare longer and all of those things. And they require a team. So help us to help giving you the information. Share the pod with your digital tribe. Do everything that you can to be a better human. Let's create better culture, better teams, and better workplaces. For now, Jay and I are Ghost. See ya. How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transform, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube.